0: Welcome to Ballistic Radio. Join us as we explore the subtlety and nuance inside the world of personal protection. Listen as industry experts, thought leaders, and pioneers investigate why it depends is the answer of champions. Ballistic Radio, critical thought over empty rhetoric. Ballistic Radio is brought to you by Big Tech's Ordinance. Big Tech's Ordinance, where every customer is a friend, not just an order. Visit them online at bigtechsordinance.com. And now, here's your host. John Johnston.
1: Welcome to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Big Text Ordinance, where every customer is a friend, not just an order. Visit them online at com. I'm your host, John Johnston. Remember, you can always listen to past shows at ballisticradio.com. And if you want to, you can follow us on Facebook. <laughs> I've been really, really ignoring it lately, and my apologies to everyone that used to like my antics on there. But man, it's just, it's, it's hard. It's hard to find the energy sometimes, but uh, I am super excited about today's show. Uh, joining us, Matthew Little, Matt Little, I, wh- which do you prefer, sir? Either one is fine. I usually just go by Matt. Matt, I will, I will try and do that. Um, for those that don't know who you are, uh, why don't you real quick, uh, just as much or as little as you would like to share about your background and what you're doing these days. And then we'll, we'll hop into today's show.
0: Okay. Um, I guess the long and short of it is I joined the army at 18, um, went to Ranger regiment, decided very quickly that I wanted to be able to have longer hair and wear sunglasses and keep my hands in my pockets. So I went to selection (laughs) for special forces at the time. This was right after Mogadishu. At the time, nothing much was really going on with the Army. Everybody was pretty much sitting on the bench. So I decided to stay in 20th Special Forces Group, which is in the National Guard. And this is kind of like the best deal in the military, really, as far as I'm concerned. Because what I did was I was able to do the SF thing basically part-time and then also be a cop. So I looked around since there wasn't much going on in the Army and picked the biggest, nastiest city I could think of. So I went to Chicago for 21 years, retired from both of those. And now I uh, compete in shooting
1: and run a training company. And name of your training company, just in case someone uh, doesn't doesn't know. The company is
0: Greybeard Actual. There's actually a war story behind it from Afghanistan. I kind of wanted a name that didn't sound like, you know, every other tactical training company out there.
1: Sure. I'm I'm curious for the war story, but I I won't I won't press. Um and and the thing that I so you and I have sort of run in the same circles a little bit as far as in the training community. Hadn't really ever gotten to sit down and talk, and then we were both teaching at a conference and actually got the opportunity to have a little bit of a conversation, not as much as I would have liked to, but we were both busy. And um what I wanted to have you on the show to talk about, I guess, would be sort of your experience in Chicago, because Chicago is one of those places where, especially inside of the, I guess, pro-2A community, it is often pointed to as well, Chicago's really bad. Look at how many shootings, uh, each weekend they have, you know, that's a very common number that gets thrown around almost gleefully, which I don't really dig. But either way, it's, it's a touchstone for a lot of people inside of what we do. And I guess what I wanted to know first is how bad is Chicago actually? Um, what, what is, what, what, is the, what is your opinion on what you see people say about it versus the reality, if you don't mind? No,
0: I, I don't mind at all. And it's, it's honestly pretty bad. And especially, it has always been bad in the high crime neighborhoods. But in the last 10 years or so, it's really gotten to where there really isn't a safe neighborhood. It's kind of spilling out of the high crime areas into what used to be the safer ones. You know, there was a time where if you stayed in the right areas, you were relatively safe. But I'm really not so sure you can say that anymore.
1: What's um what do you think is I mean, so when you say it's really bad, and you know, I guess put that into perspective for people because that is a pretty um sort of ambiguous statement in so much that, you know, your idea of bad versus my idea of bad versus someone else's idea of bad could be very different. And, and I was wondering if you could expand on that. And then, then we'll get into the actual thing that I I want to talk about, but this is setting it up nicely. I hope, I hope. Yeah, absolutely. And I can think of kind of um,
0: two, two ways to illustrate how bad it actually is from my personal experience. So, one, whenever I was deployed, I used to, uh, just out of curiosity, I would check in the morning on the CIPRNet and look at casualties in Afghanistan. And then I still got my department emails when I was on my military leaves of absence. So I would look at the shooting reports in the department emails and compare numbers between people shot in Chicago and fatalities in Afghanistan and this, like the last time was like circa 2010, right? Mm-hmm. And there were many days where fatalities in Chicago outpaced fatalities in a war zone.
1: Well, and back in 2010 too. So that's uh, that's pretty telling.
0: What do you think?
1: <sighs> Man, I I know the question I want to ask, but I'm trying to think of the best way to frame it. Um, what do you think was driving that, or what do you think? What is the the meta of Chicago? Why is Chicago the way it is? What 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 do you think's sort of going on there? Well, oh, Yeah, there's there's a lot to unpack there. Oh, yeah, no, sorry, wait, no, 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 sorry. While I'm thinking about
0: it, let me um the other illustration I was going to make. Yeah, please. Is that you know I'm I'm six three and well over 200 pounds, and I'm I'm pretty fit. I'm not the person who typically gets robbed. You know, I I used to always joke about how it annoyed me that nobody would ever mug me. But that was kind of a joke, right? Mm -hmm. And there were multiple instances where off-duty in Chicago, people would basically start problems with me, even though I'm not typically the person like I'm not an easy mark, you know what I mean? Sure. So if I'm experiencing that off-duty, then things are pretty risky for regular civilians.
1: Yeah, that's that's actually, huh. I need to think about that a little bit more. As far as what, what do you think is sort of driving that? Or is there any one particular thing that you could point to? Or would that be an entirely different episode?
0: Um, I I can talk
1: about it a bit, and
0: it's it's quite honestly the change in law enforcement. You know, Chicago was always a violent place, and I think a lot of the violence in the bad neighborhoods, and even in the good ones, came, you know, the, the classic analogy everybody talks about in the 2A community is that it's the effect of, you know, the, the anti-gun legislation. Right. Yeah. And I think to a large degree that does have a factor, you know, it's, it's a lot easier to victimize people when they can't defend themselves. So I think that was definitely part of it. Although that piece has actually gotten much better as a lot of the laws have been overturned, you know, in Chicago regarding concealed carry, things like that. Sure. But the main driving force above and beyond that is even before the defund of the police movement nationwide, the police in Chicago were, you know, systematically hamstrung to a higher and higher degree throughout the second half of my career. And I just watched it get worse and worse. And, you know, correlation is not causality, but... I can see what I believe to be the effects of that happening at a pretty profound level throughout the city.
1: Yeah. Mm -mm. Well, and it strikes me too that, well, there are a couple of things that strike me, but the having met you in person and mm, having a better than average understanding of what I'm looking at. When I see somebody, you would not be my first, second, or third pick for someone that I would want to victimize and presumably criminals are actually for the most part, pretty good at victim selection. Um, at least in my experience, not always. And when they get it wrong, they get it really wrong, but I'm having a hard time imagining the environment or set of conditions that would need to exist for that to be, You know, a more than one time occurrence for somebody like you. So, and I do you, and we've, well, man, we've got to go to break though. Here we'll go to break, but the question I, I would like for you to think about before, um, you know, while during the break is why do you think that is, you know, what is, I guess, what is different about the type of criminal in that place versus other places where maybe Oh. Deterrence is is more effective? I I don't I hopefully you understand the question I'm trying to ask, but I I think I'm doing a poor job of asking it. So, but either way, think about that on the break. Uh right now we're talking with Matt Little from Graybeard Actual. You're listening to Ballistic Radio. Welcome back to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Big Tech's Ordinance, where every customer is a friend, not just an order. Visit them online at BigTech'sOrdinance.com. This segment brought to you by Wilson Combat. Wilson Combat makers the finest custom 1911s and scatterguns since 1977. Legacy of quality, innovation, and service. Learn more about their firearms and accessories, as well as the X-9 family of firearms, which offers discriminating shooters 1911 match grade accuracy, superior ergonomics, and concealability. With modern service pistol capacity as well as reliability at wilsoncombat.com. So we're talking with Matt Little from Greybeard Actual. And before the break, I, I very poorly asked, uh, if you had an idea as far as why someone like you would be interviewed for victimization, I guess. Um, you know, whereas I would not typically expect that at least not on a semi-frequent or even a more than one space as anywhere else. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that?
0: I do actually. And I
1: think it has to do a lot with the, uh, the
0: gang culture. Okay. Um, like here's an example of, of one of the incidents. Um, I actually, I, I have a Harley Davidson that, you know, I enjoy writing and it was parked outside and it was in a decent neighborhood. You know, it was a it was definitely a neighborhood that if you wanted to live there, you would have to spend some money, or beyond section eight. And I walked out of the building that I had been in visiting someone, and somebody was sitting on my motorcycle playing with the controls. And, you know, when I walked up and asked them to get off the bike, they and their buddy, you know, basically it was like the whole macho game. Yeah. Me. So I think a lot of, a lot of the things that are like that have to do with kind of the, the street cred. If you're in that culture, if you're in that gang culture, so that even if, you know, even if you do all the, um, the de-escalation things, talking to somebody trying to avoid the conflict, sometimes they're going to pursue the conflict just simply because of the culture they're coming from at the moment. Is that making sense?
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm curious. Do you think that, uh, I know that's something that William April, when he was still with us, talked about in his classes quite a bit. But do you think that regular everyday Earth people have any sort of idea about, I guess, when, when when they're interacting with certain people um, how bad it could get, how quickly, or do you think that, do you think that that is not discussed enough inside of the training community?
0: I think it's definitely not discussed enough inside the training community. And I think that people, people without extensive experience with violence tend to underestimate just how brutal and chaotic it actually is. You know, it's very easy, and I enjoy action movies too. I mean, who doesn't enjoy A Good Afternoon of John Wick, right? Mm -hmm. But that's just not reality. That's just not how it actually goes. I think that that people have this, this image of violence as something that can be kind of choreographed, and made to be a neat problem to solve when that's actually seldom the case.
1: Well, and I wonder too, that, do you think there are things that, you know, you or I, if in attempting to, I guess, be cool with somebody like, you know, like, oh, sorry, you know, whatever that is, are there things that, that normal people would maybe try and do to deescalate a situation that might not play well um, with certain folks, depending on where they come from and what, you know, sort of culture they, they exist in. Oh
0: yeah, absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, who who actually just put something up about this on social media that I thought was really well done was Paul Sharp. Have you ever met Paul?
1: Oh yeah. Paul, I've known Paul a long, long time. Paul's, Paul's incredible. Yeah. He's a really good dude and very knowledgeable with all of this
0: stuff. And I really liked something he said about how you want to appear. I mean, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, but sure. basically you, you want it to be unassuming, like you're not seeking out conflict, but you can't be, you can't be showing soft underbelly either. Right. right. Because certain people will just see that as the opportunity to attack. So I think that people, when they try to deescalate, sometimes they, they're they not doing it from a position of strength, at least a perceived position of strength. And I right. think that you need to give the guy the out to save face, but you need him to not want the fight because he knows it's not going to be one-sided.
1: Well, and there's a big difference between sort of an attitude like, man, I'd Rather not, but if you really want to, I guess, versus, oh, please, not right now, you know, and or the reverse of someone that's not super capable, knows they're not, but is trying to bluff it and just comes across as panicky. Like, it, it seems like maybe that'd be a a fine line between too much, too little and just right. And I, what What are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And one of the analogies I like, because, you know, so many people have watched the UFC, and they understand that when you give somebody your back in that combative environment, the fight is pretty much done, right? Well, why do you give somebody your back? It's because you're you're covering up, you're turtling up, you're trying to protect yourself. You're no longer actively engaged in the conflict. You're now trying to just hang on and survive rather than prevail, if that makes sense. And I think that that kind of body language shift is very dangerous around certain people because it's like waving a red flag in front of the bull. Yeah. They, they don't want a fair fight. They want the beat down. So if you appear to be someone that can be handled that easily, they're going to pursue it.
1: Well, and you said something there that is kind of interesting. And I wonder if this, you know, and I, I understand why As trainers, we'd need to be careful, but there's maybe a difference in mindset that should be discussed, you know, trying to survive a fight versus trying to dominate a fight or win a fight. Right. And, you know, I, I never want to be in a fight. Like if I, if I can avoid that any way at all, I will, but if I'm going to be in a fight, I, I don't want to survive it. I want to win. You know, and do you think that that is, is that distinction made enough? I don't think it is, Um, honestly, especially in
0: firearms training. I think that guys like, uh, you know, Craig Douglas and ECQC and um, Cliff Byerly and, and all of those guys, I think they do a really good job with the combatives piece, making people understand that. Yeah. But I think that a lot of the way firearms have traditionally been trained for the self-defense shooter, you know, like, like one of the classic drills is that whole, like, you know, creating space and shooting as you move backwards. Sure. And this is something I talk about in my applications class. If I'm that close to someone, I want to dominate them, not retreat from them.
1: Yeah, even if I'm
0: putting even if I'm putting effective hits on them that are going to take them down, I can't count on that happening fast enough to stop them from shooting me. And if I'm walking backwards from them at arm's length, I'm not making myself any more of a difficult target to engage. And psychologically, if they're a fighter, I'm giving them the impression that they have the upper hand, even if they're getting shot and don't realize it. Am I making
1: sense? Yeah, no. And I mean, so I'm always, I always kind of chuckle when I see, um, when I see that exercise and because for lots of reasons, right. But, you know, the idea of drawing a firearm that close to somebody when you don't necessarily have control of them already is sort of interesting to me. And presumably at that distance, you know, if they're a lethal threat, they might have their own weapon that maybe it would be better for you to try and control that. But, you know, the, the piece that you're talking about, the, the, the retreat versus the, you know, maybe not even closing in on someone if, if you've got positional advantage or, you know, you've got space, but like giving up ground, you don't need to give up. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's lots of pieces to that, but I, I think it does speak to the overall, you know, way that we discuss these problems and, you know, the flip side of the coin, I guess, and the problem is when you look at the legal component to it, you know, and getting people to understand that you're not the aggressor, but after someone has aggressed on you and, you know, legally, morally, ethically, you are justified in defending yourself, um it's probably important to win versus just not lose, you know?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And even with the legal piece, and I, I realize that I have a bit of a different perspective on this because I've testified, you know, countless times in court. Sure. But I, I'm very comfortable with believing that I could articulate why my reaction to their aggression was even more aggressive Mm -hmm. and do it in a way that explains my experience with violence and how I understand how easily I could lose this fight and be killed and that I was fearful for my own life. And I think that that is something too, that like you need to, you need to rehearse all this ahead of time. You need to have a plan ahead of time, not just for the fight, but for the fight that follows the fight. Yeah. And if you don't work all this stuff out before it ever happens, there's going to be issues. You know, we rehearse the actions during the fight itself, but we don't rehearse enough the actions we could take to avoid the fight that also make it obvious to any witnesses that we don't want the fight. Yeah. Then the stuff we do rehearse is the part during the fight, but then we also need to rehearse what happens afterwards, you know ensuring that we get an attorney without appearing guilty to the responding officers, not getting shot
1: by responding officers. Well, that's a big one. Um, a that's one. a huge one. Yeah. Yeah. And that's actually, I want to talk about that for a little bit because you are uniquely um, suited to discuss that. We have to go to break though. Um, right now we're talking with Matt Little from Greybeard Actual. You're listening to ballistic radio. Welcome back to Ballistic Radio brought to you by Big Tex Ordinance, where every customer is a friend, not just an order. Visit them online at bigtechsordinance.com. This segment also brought to you by Big Tech's Ordinance. Big Tech's Ordinance is the best place for you to find all of your everyday carrying needs at the absolute best prices. Maybe you need all the candela from ModLight at the lowest price? No problem. Spend too much time alone in your room, and now you need an optic on your pistol? Well Big Tech's Ordinance has those, and they don't judge. Glock accessories, yes. Fast, cheap shipping, 100% hassle-free returns, all that and more. And best of all, Big Tech's Ordinance has Ike. He's a good man and thorough. I like Ike. Everybody likes Ike, and you'll like Ike, too. Visit com today and find out what happens when every customer is a friend, not just an order. So we're talking with Matt Little uh, from Greybeard Actual, and we are... We're we're sort of getting into some of the interesting things that are probably really important about this, and and I feel like you had a thought that you wanted to continue on at the end of the last segment, and then I interrupted you. So I apologize for that, but but let's start from there, I guess.
0: Yeah, we were talking about um, ensuring that you're not shot by responding officers. Right, you have to use your firearm. And this is something that I think people need to seriously think about and have a plan in their mind before anything bad happens. You know, and it's it's very easy as a policeman responding to a call based on what you're told by the dispatcher. And we can't control that. We don't know who who's calling 911 and what they're going to say, right? So you need to understand that when the officers show up, you need to not appear to be a threat. And you need to follow their commands, be very calm. You know, it's ideally you could be holstered up before they get there if you can. But if you can't, if someone's still potentially a threat, if you're holding somebody at gunpoint, as soon as the cops get there, you've got to do exactly as they say. And appear very calm and not escalate the situation because realize they don't know. They don't know who you are. They don't know what just happened. And they don't know if you're a threat to someone else or to them. So you need to make sure that you appear not to be, if that makes sense.
1: When it does. And I actually, funny enough, I had an experience where um I was the subject of a uh, felony arrest for something I did not do, uh, but was reported to have done. And I remember that instance very specifically because, one, I knew police were coming. And two, being... Very concerned before they got there about making sure they didn't shoot me. Cause I could hear what the other person was saying. And I'm like, Oh, that doesn't sound good. I mean, and none of it was happening, but that's not really the point. Right. And, um, yeah, the not getting shot by the cops part is a pretty big deal that I've, you know, I wonder if there should be more of a focus on that. I know that in my own course work for the contextual stuff we discuss it pretty heavily but um I don't know a ton of people that are and what do you think some things what are some things that people could do if they are in that situation to not appear threatening. So I mean, you know, not having the gun in the hand that's a that's a pretty, you know, easy one as far as if that's possible and following commands but Is there any sort of body language or, you know, what happens if the police are giving conflicting commands? Is there any sort of default answer on how someone might handle that?
0: And the conflicting commands thing used to be a big problem in law enforcement, but that is something that has been trained better and better over the years. Yeah. And people are pretty, in most departments, people realize that there needs to be one officer issuing commands But that doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be followed, right? Right. So if you're getting multiple commands that are kind of, you know, somebody's telling you to turn around, somebody's telling you to lay flat, right? I mean, just basically do the best you can. Hands hands up above your head. You know, I would make eye contact, but not in a combative way. You know what I mean? But let them see that you're looking at them and that you're listening to them. You know, nod your head. You know, say yes. And if you're getting conflicting commands, you know, maybe even say, hey, you guys are telling me two different things. Um, I'm going to follow both. I'm going to turn around and get prone. But I I am listening to you and I'm doing it right now. Yeah. It's nice and calm. And realize that there's a wide variety of experience levels and skill levels, training levels between different law enforcement officers, even in the same agency, much less between different departments. So if somebody's not overly experienced with violence and not necessarily highly trained, they can be very amped as well. So it's almost like the same de-escalation with the bad guys, but this time you're doing it with the good guys. So let them know that, you know, you're also a good guy and you're going to do what they say.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I distinctly remember in the incident I was involved in, I, uh, Actually, I actually had my hands up on a wall when when the first officer showed up Um and he was very confused by that and, you know, was facing the wall Um uh, and he goes. Uh, What's going on here? And I go, sir, I am happy to talk with you, but if you could, you know, take me into custody um, after you do that, I'd, I'd be happy to talk. I just don't don't want to make you nervous. And he's like, oh, you know, and so it was just it was a weird thing. Right. But I ended up not shot. So I guess it worked out just fine. The, the thing though is like having that understanding that <laughs> the police are people too. Um, I know that seems like a weird thing to say, but the police are people too, right? They have emotions and feelings about what's going on as well. What you pointed out. So as far as <clears throat> I guess training priorities or, you know, as, as far as like victim selection here, let's, let's talk about that a little bit more. We, we sort of discussed a little bit how, you know, depending on someone's culture or background, they might not respond the way we would expect them to with what we're doing. But is there anything else that, you know, before you had the experience you had over the course of your career, is there anything that you thought going into it that, Afterwards, you're like, yep, I was wrong about this. And man, it would have been nice to know ahead of time or.
0: You know, I,
1: I've never really thought about it that way.
0: Um, I mean, obviously you get more and more knowledge about your craft, the longer you practice it. Right. Sure. And you know, the more police work I did, the more kind of empirical evidence you would amass from all of these different situations everybody is in, right? And I guess kind of rather than saying something I was wrong about, I'm sure there were things, but I can't really think of anything off the top of my head. Sure. Maybe maybe I'll just talk for a second more if that's okay about like what I did learn. About yeah, please. Kind of the offender, the offender mindset. Right, and my theory on that.
1: Yeah, no, I'd I'd love to hear it. And frankly, I, the, the more you talk, the less, uh, everyone gets to hear to the, hear from the person they don't want to hear from. I mean, they're, they're here for, for you, not for me. So talk as much as you want, man.
0: So it's like, in my mind, it's almost like there's like three broad categories of violent offenders, right? You've got the people that are in some sort of, you know, hyper emotional situation and react in a way that they might not typically react um sometimes very predictably and sometimes very unpredictably right it's like you know the moment when somebody snaps right sure. the falling down remember the old movie falling down yeah
1: an amazing yeah, falling movie. down
0: moment right yep and then you've got and this this middle category is probably the overwhelming majority of criminal offenders violent criminal offenders and these are the people that don't want to fight they want to be brutal they want to be a bully but they don't want a real fight they're they're jackals they're carrion feeders not predators right they're looking for the weak and the infirm in the herd and you can see them pick the people out of the herd they want to victimize because i've seen it Work in plain clothes in crowded areas especially at like uh, you know big public events we used to do a lot of that on SWAT where we would be walking around like Lollapalooza or, you know, a football game or something like that in plain clothes. And you can see the predators go through the herd after a while. I should, I mean, well, I just said they weren't predators, but you know what I mean? You can see the, yeah, carpels. yeah, yeah. You can see the, the jackals. You can see them walk among the antelope, right? And they're easy to pick and you can see what they're looking for. They're looking for the helpless. They don't want somebody that's going to put up a fight. And that's the bulk of, of violent criminals. And then you've got this small percentage that want the fight because they like it. And they don't really care what happens to them. And those are the ones you really have to look out for. Because their thought process is not like that of a regular person's. You know, it's, um, you talked about William April a minute ago Yeah, and yeah, it's, it's what his, what he said is very, very much true, right? They are not us. They don't think like us. It's a very different thought
1: process. Yeah. Um, and I kind of want to get into that a little bit more. Uh, we were up on a break again. Um, but we are talking with Matt Little from Greybeard actual, you are listening to ballistic radio. Welcome back to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Big Text Ordinance, where every customer is a friend, not just an order. Visit them online at bigtextordinance.com. So we're talking with Matt Little from Greybeard Actual, and you were sort of breaking down the three categories of, I guess, violent criminals. The, You know, the first being someone that is in a highly charged emotional state um, and snaps, right, the falling down. Then you've got the people that are, you know, essentially looking for resources. Uh, you know, it's instrumental violence. The violence is just instrumental to getting what they want and they're not necessarily looking for a fight. Um, and then you've got the third category as far as the people that don't mind the fight. In fact, they might like it. In fact, that might be what they're looking for. And I guess. You know the another way to think of that would be the um, the highly motivated or dedicated attacker, right? The sort of person that you know just because you get a gun out doesn't mean anything to them, or maybe even if you put an ineffective hit on them, they don't care, they don't notice they've been shot before, no big deal. So, and that's a different kind of a different ball game there, yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, matter of fact, I'll use an example for my career. I'm not going to say the name, but there was a guy um, when I was on the gang team in the 14th district. There was a guy who had been robbing, raping and murdering prostitutes, and we were trying to make a case on him. They were surveilling him. I was actually in court at the time, just gotten out of court for testifying. And they'd been surveilling him all morning, and they saw him with the guns. They decided to arrest him, my teammates. I was on my way back from the courthouse. So he started fighting. He was a big guy. He's uh, well over 60 tall, well over 200 pounds. And right as I pulled up on scene, because I knew the fight was going on, because, you know, it had been put out on the radio. Right as I pulled up on scene, I saw one of my teammates Hit him as hard as he could with an expandable baton in the head. Because this was like a lethal force at this point. They were fighting for the gun with the guy. Yeah. He hit him so hard. The guy that hit him was a power lifter. He hit him so hard with that asp that it bent the asp into a curve on the guy's head. The guy looked at him and said, let's be professional now, and punched him. (laughs) Uh, I wound up fighting with this guy and I got him in a lock and separated his shoulder. I, I distinctly remember hearing the shoulder pop and like the arm just hang. And the guy looked at me and goes, oh, it's going to be like that. And hit me with the other hand. <laughs> I wound up choking him out. That was the only way we could get him under control. Yeah. Right. This guy just loved to fight. He just loved to fight and he wasn't, I mean, yeah, his victims were weaker and easier to fight than him, but he didn't mind taking on my entire team, you know, knowing that he was eventually going to lose. He was going to take as much of us with him as he could. Right. Right.
1: So how do you prepare for something like that?
0: You know, and that's,
1: and should people worry about preparing
0: oh, for yeah. something
1: like that? Yeah, because
0: that's it's an outlier, right? Sure. But here's something else I talk about a lot in my classes is that I think mm-hmm. we tend to do ourselves a disservice when we do our needs analysis for our training, right? And the military is not so bad about this. The military does a pretty good job. Mm-hmm. But both law enforcement and civilian self-defense minded people tend to look at the most probable events and kind of downplay the outliers. Mm-hmm. Right? And I, I kind of have thoughts on that. I, I think that number one, your training needs to be difficult enough that the real thing will almost always feel easy by comparison. Right? So if you train for the outliers, then the normal situation becomes easy and no big deal. Whereas if all you do is train for the normal situation, that's your, that's your limit. You're maxed out. So if you get more than that, it's going to be a bad day. And even doing what you've trained for is going to be harder than it should be because you haven't gone past that in training. You haven't built up like a buffer of skill, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. But I think that one of the most important things people can do is spend a serious amount of time doing like a combat sport or a martial art that has non-cooperative practice. Because fighting is at its heart fighting, regardless of what medium you're using to impose your will. So like the mental, the psychological aspects of fighting don't change between grappling, striking, and gunfighting. The tactics aren't necessarily the same. The physical techniques may be different, but the principles of conflict are universal. You know, psychologically fighting is fighting regardless. And you need to put yourself in those situations And even go beyond that. Like one of my favorite things to do when, you know, I'm grappling with people is put myself in a very disadvantageous position and then have to work out of it. Mm -hmm. And if I lose on the mat, who cares? Like I'm putting myself at a disadvantage on purpose. And if I lose, I lose. But then when it's the real thing, I've already been in that bad situation. Am I making sense?
1: Yeah. Um, And, you know, I'm I'm awful with fighting uh, awful at it. Uh, I've been in the bad situation for real and not had anywhere to go with it. It was not a pleasant experience and, uh, it makes, makes absolute sense. And the, the thing that strikes me is that, and you, you sort of mentioned something in the beginning of the show too, that I think sort of dovetails into this, right? Getting comfortable being places where someone else wants to win as much as you do is probably good for you is, is sort of what that could be boiled down to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And honestly, I think it's good for you, you know,
0: go beyond the self-defense incident that hopefully you'll never be put through, right? Right. I mean, yeah, you're preparing for that, but hopefully it never happens. My my earnest wish would be that nobody ever has to actually do it. We know that's not the case, but you know what I mean.
1: Yeah, no, I do.
0: But go beyond that. And it it gives you, there's a reason why people look to martial arts for personal development, right? Because that struggle, that strife, that putting yourself in that position has lessons that carry over to the rest of life as well. Which means that even if you never get in that life or death struggle, the lessons you learned from preparing for it do you well with the rest of life.
1: Well, and it certainly helps build resiliency, uh, which is a pretty useful skill for anybody to have. Um, question for you, because you mentioned at the beginning of the show that you shoot competition. And this is uh, this actually came up recently in a private conversation I was having. Um, but what would you say to the idea that if you're interested in self-defense, shooting competition is bad for you?
0: I would say that anyone who believes that has never really shot competition to an extensive degree. And just by way of illustration, you know, Special operations units bring in competitive shooters to learn to shoot. Competitive shooters train shooting as an athletic endeavor, which most people do not do. And they do it at a very, very high level. And that level of skill is a huge benefit to you for self-defense. But there's more than just that. Like it, it develops these other attributes. So... Trying to figure out how to articulate this. When I first started shooting USPSA, all I cared about was, you know, how it was going to make me a better shooter for work, right? So I didn't really care about what I thought were kind of the gaming parts of it. I wasn't focused on them. I was focused more on just the pure shooting parts, right? Sure. So like the stage, you know, stage planning and some of the movement stuff and everything. At first, I, I didn't really buy off on And then I got tired of losing matches since I was shooting competition so much. I was like, well, fine, this is going to be my hobby, my sport, you know, so I want to be good at it above and beyond what I think I need to do for work. So I started working really hard on the movement piece and the mental game and stage planning and all of those things that people tend to actually talk bad about from a combative standpoint, right? Right. And what I discovered was that my tactics, my CQB were so much better after I did that. There's a huge benefit for tactics and CQB from shooting competition, even though they're different. And the benefit runs all one way. It doesn't matter how much CQB or pure tactical, you know, scenario type training you do. None of that's going to make you good at matches. But if you know the tactics, being good at matches will make you better in the other environment. And the reason is I started looking at things with an eye towards athletic efficiency and my brain got acclimated to thinking about things in hundreds of a second. And both of those things made a huge difference when I was training for the real world because I was able to kind of open up my perception to a much higher level than it had been before And evaluate my environment much more rapidly because I've been doing it in matches at that pace. And you're never going to, you're never going to have that, you know, huge accelerated rushing through everything pace. As long as you do in a 32 round field course in the real world, you'll have little bursts of it, you know, but it's not the same. Right. Yeah. But learning to run at that pace made the pace you move at, for real-world application, feel incredibly calm and easy because I would kind of done overspeed training. If that makes sense.
1: No, it does, and it's uh, <laughs> you. I sometimes ask people questions, and I I have a good idea what kind of answer I'm going to get, but I don't. Yeah, there's no way to know for certain, right? But uh, this has been a question that I've liked to ask certain people, especially recently, because it's come up more and uh that i I love that answer that's a that's a very good answer in my opinion so um man we are we are up towards the end of the show is there what what do you have going on if people want to check you out or come take a class with you what's what's your next big thing
0: so Classes are going to be, you know, we're moving into the holidays, right? So I've got a couple of law enforcement classes, but no open enrollment stuff for a couple of months. I've got some law enforcement going on. And then starting in March, there's open enrollment all throughout next year. The schedule is already set. Nice. Website is graybeardactual.com, either with a G-R-E-Y or G-R-A-Y. Either one works. Course calendars on there. You can sign up for classes on there. You know, there's merchandise and stuff as well. There's also a bunch of uh, resources, videos about different drills. There's a blog with a bunch of articles in it, things like that. So I'd love it if people went and checked that out. I'm Perfect. also, since you have to feed the social media machine, I'm Graybeard underscore actual on Instagram and Graybeard actual on Facebook. So guys can find me either way there. Twitter also. Nice. And that's pretty much how to find everything. We've got a bunch of classes next year. So if anybody wants to come out and train, I'd love to see them on the range.
1: Well, man, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to, uh, to talk to us. And, uh, I am, I'm hopeful, hopeful to make it out to one of your classes at some point because I've enjoyed following, um, following some of the stuff you talk about online and you've come very highly recommended from people that I, uh, respect quite a bit and i've enjoyed every conversation we've ever had so uh dude uh, really really appreciate it
0: i've had a i've had a great time
1: talking to you and i hope you can come out to a class when i'd love to to shoot with you coming out anytime oh yeah yeah man so hey guys make sure you check out our website ballisticradio.com like our facebook page dot com slash ballistic radio and please if you think we've earned it Keep leaving those five-star reviews on iTunes. It really helps us out. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, be safe and see you next week.